0: Hello there and welcome this week to our Halloween edition of Talking Flutes with moi, Jean-Paul, and toi. Toi isn't the right thing, is it? And you Claire? Yes, me, Claire. (laughs) The opening theme tune was, as you would recognise it, it was Thriller by Michael Jackson, arranged and played by my good buddy, Theo Travis. Oh, and a big shout out to our wonderful sponsors, TJ Flutes, who have been with us Since the start, Cracky, how long ago was this, Claire? Five and a half years? At least. Oh, good grief. Please stop listening, everybody. We'll have an excuse to stop doing these then. (laughs) Oh, and it's down in Hove. And as you would expect, as it always is when I'm here, it's sunny.
1: You always mention the weather.
0: I do. (laughs) It's my age thing again. I've just turned over a big birthday. I'm not going to tell. I'm going to be very feminine about it. A very big number.
1: Have you? Yeah, I have. Well, Rolf's just, just had a big birthday too.
0: I know, but he's in very good nick for that age. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: been a few days of celebration.
0: Yeah, I've, I haven't celebrated much.
1: Huh.
0: No, I'd, I was much happier when the day had gone.
1: Well, that's quite sad.
0: No, no. It should
1: always be celebrated.
0: In my own little way,
1: mm. in
0: my own little way. So, here we go. Halloween. Halloween.
1: So, scary pieces or occasions, I thought.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: And it's, um, you know, when I, when I started to think about this, um, I was thinking at the start sort of um, obvious excerpts from sort of various fruit pieces, which were sort of jumping out of me as I started to think about them. But then. When I started about, I started thinking about when I first actually started the flute and how I was scared of even just getting a note out of the flute on certain occasions, I think I've mentioned my first concert was when I was 11 at school and I was doing a flute duet playing the can-can and I didn't get a note out until the last few bars of the piece and I remember one of the teachers said, oh, I wondered when you were going to make a sound or something like that. I was absolutely... Petrified. So that was my first sort of real memory of being really scared in terms of a flute
0: moment. Mine was Wombles at school. Wombles. Yeah, the Wombles. The music was placed on the stand, and it was the theme tune to the Wombles, and the flute had the theme. Dum da dum 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 da dum da 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 But the thing in my head, I remember the theme tune. So I managed to get through the whole lot and the music teacher looked over and said, Jean-Paul, that was wonderful, and took me from the back seat to the top seat. And I was found out straight after that, the only reason I could play that is not because I could read the music, it's just because (laughs) the theme tune was in my head.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, talk about theme tunes in your head, um, I, I might have mentioned this story in the previous podcast, maybe five years ago. But um, I was doing a, a, a big children's concert in the northwest of England, and there were only five musicians, and there was someone who led the whole show, and it was all based on radio program that all the kids had been listening during their term time. Anyway, we got stuck in traffic for this big. There's about 2,000 kids waiting in a town hall for us. We got stuck in traffic and we were late. And by the time we got to the, the hall, They'd started without us, so the, the compare was also the pianist, so he was playing things along. But each of the musicians had a, a tune to play. And um, mine was Anisong, and the horn player was Chike 5. Anyway, so I started Anisong, which is the same notes as the Chike 5 horn song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, oh, no, I've gone into... Tchaikovsky, <laughs> where I should be, in uh, Annie's song. And I, I thought, well, do I know this? I only know it in my head anyway. I kept going. Out. I, it was absolutely petrifying. So, of course, the compere then had to say, well, we, did we catch you out there? That was the horn tune. you, and the horn player was so so upset because he didn't have anything to play then. But um, as you're playing and you're so scared because you don't know how you're going to get out of it, mm. but you do.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> When I was younger, I served in Her Majesty's Grenadier Guards Band, and we once did, well, we always used to do investitures and banquets at the, at the palace, Buckingham Palace, with the royal family and visiting dignitaries, or if they're having a family uh, event, there would be a small salon orchestra, and you obviously used to wear, you used to have to, have to wear red, uh, black socks, because you had your blue trousers, your red tunic, you black shoes, and then you need black socks. Now, anybody who knows me knows I've only ever worn since the age of 16, and this is another long story, I'm not <laughs> going to go over it on this podcast, as why I only wear red socks. So when I used to do military things, with things with the band, state occasions or uh, things with the royal family, I used to have to pair, put a pair of black socks over my red socks. Why I didn't just take my why? red socks? Do uh, no, you know? I don't know.
1: I
2: think you might need to go into therapy about that. <laughs> I
0: think my daughter said that. <laughs> I know, yeah. Oh, God, <laughs> I was 19. So I, I, we it turned up to get changed, and I didn't have any black socks with me. I only had my red socks. And we went over to the palace. And when you're walking, you can see... We uh, just sort of walked over, because in those days you didn't get busted. We just sort of walk across the road from... the. Uh, Wellington Barracks, I never lived there but that's where the band practice room was and where we used to get changed, over to Buckingham Palace I walk over and there's people behind me going have you got your red socks on I said I've forgotten my black socks and said hopefully they won't call us down because sometimes you used to get called down when the Queen or whoever it was was hosting would come and thank you because they'd see your red socks and then you'd be in serious trouble and I spent the whole of the, the the banquet wishing that they didn't call us down. <laughs> and they didn't. And I got away with it. Hmm. Red Sox.
1: What would have been the punishment?
0: Oh, crikey. Um, do you know, I think they might have locked me up for the night. I don't know.
1: Oh.
0: Or I would have been fined.
1: But you spent the whole time just worried about what was going yeah, to happen I rather than what you were doing. Yes,
0: Absolutely. Hmm. The whole time, and it was the most sterile performance. I mean, I used to love doing it. They didn't last very long, the banquets, because the Queen didn't eat much. Uh, but it's all I was worried about was whether we we're going to get called down and whether it's going to get found out. Yeah. Uh, did I learn a lesson from that? Yes, I never forgot a black pair of uh, socks again. <laughs> but it also, I was quite frightened actually, because there's some quite complicated stuff in a salon orchestra, and I can't remember any note crackers.
1: Yeah. So it seemed about the sort of moments before you play, because I was thinking that quite a lot of my scariest moments have been before I played.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: walking on, so walking in to do my grade eight exam when I'd never taken a grade exam before, so I wasn't really sure what what to expect. And just, so walking in was, was really scary. And then played my pieces, I'd learnt my piece, of course, I learnt my scales, yes. I'd never done any formal oral training so that was really scary um you know once i started playing it was it was okay and then i remember the the nfa young musician competition or the, i played at the, the convention the, the american convention a few times and you're always playing to about between two four or six thousand people mm-hmm. so it's that moment when someone goes you're on that feels really sort of scary as you're walking on, but once you're there, once you're there in front of everyone, you'll you, you go into sort of work mode, professional mode, and it all, it, it sort of all works out. And the only times when I was thinking that hasn't worked out quite as well as I'd hoped was I was doing a music club concert and my flute had been playing up in terms of, I knew there was something wrong, but I couldn't, I couldn't see what it was or why every now and again it would... You know, I just couldn't get some notes out. So, But it wasn't as simple as pads leaking and, and it wasn't as simple as a screw coming undone or anything. I just couldn't work it out. Anyway, I had to go out and play Paganini 24th Caprice. <laughs> <laughs> it was just literally about, about the second variation. You know, it, you just get these spaces where there was absolutely <laughs> nothing coming out. It was just, I didn't know what to do, but I just had to keep going. And it was just a complete... An utter nightmare.
0: (laughs) Did you play everything with music, or did you play by memory?
1: I played... For most of my career, I played with music. Mm -hmm. But it was only in the latter part of my career where I started playing things without music. I think it was always when I was training. I was in my first year, and two weeks, or maybe it was even a week before the first year exam, the first year recital there were two two flutes in my ear. And we were just told, oh, by the way, your exam's from memory. Now, I'd never played anything from memory, apart from fun things Mm. or songs I liked or whatever. And it absolutely terrified me. And I remember I was playing Poulenc Sonata. They just said, we just want to hear the second and third movements. And I got the second note wrong of the second (laughs) movement. (laughs) And luckily, there was someone on the panel, one of the deans of the college, who said... Claire, it's okay. You don't have to do this from memory. You just put the music up. And and then I, and I played, and he was so nice about it, but I hadn't had any preparation for it. It's like some, someone telling you so close to a performance from memory, well, you can't do that. You have to prepare for months ahead. So that really scared me, and I didn't want to put myself in that situation again. But many years later... There were certain pieces that needed to be done from memory. I remember um, Ian Clark, TRK's. Oh, yeah. Which is this wonderfully evocative piece where you need the lights down. It has to be done from memory. And that felt, that felt easy because the lights were down and it wasn't a complex piece. Also, Debussy Syrinx is often done sort of off stage.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Also, it, it didn't feel complex or difficult. You know, I've just, I've just watched a bit of the, uh, the Young Musician of the Year, the BBC Young Musician mm. of the Year final, with this wonderful flute player Is at Cheesham School of Music, Sylvia. She was playing in one of the rounds, maybe it was the final of the Woodwind round. She was playing things like, I think it was the Liebman Sonata, and she was playing something else, I actually can't remember what it was, but she was doing everything from memory. And with such panache, with such confidence. But that's training, so, you're, you know, if you've had, she's had something like this, six, seven years at Cheatham School of Music, the training there means you're gently introduced to doing things like playing from memory. Um, and it's not scary because it's just part of your training. Whereas for me, it was just thrust upon me as something, you have to do it in two days' time sort of thing. It's all to do with how you approach these things and doing it in the correct way.
0: I always found it scary. I never had to do it, going into exams or performances. But I suppose when I was in my early 20s, I, I got sort of slightly cocky. And I think I've told this before. I think it was 85, the opening of the Brisbane Opera House. And it might have been a slightly earlier, 83, 85. No, I think it was 85. It was over there, and I was doing the eBay. And for an encore... That was I did did that with music. And then for an encore I did Carnival Venice. And I never did Carnival Venice with music, because I used to mess around. And I used to get to the cadenza and I used to make it up as I went along. And there gets to a point where confidence and cockiness and arrogance cross over. And I'd always been fine with this piece because it was I would always put the standard cadenza in and sort of mess around a little bit with it but on this one occasion I'd sort of decided to go off piste and then couldn't find my way back I think I from my own perspective what it did it it sort of scared me to of playing things without music again because when I got lost in the cadenza and I couldn't find my way back to sort of the dominant chord for the orchestra to come back out, so the conductor could know that I was getting ready to finish. I started trying to think what I, what I was doing. And this is why it's nightmare, because we have the dogs! Oh, <laughs> it's Let's, the postman! It's the postman! <laughs> I love this. So yeah, as you can probably gather, the, we're here and we have Claire's three gorgeous dogs. And it's, it's weird, isn't it, how dogs have this thing for postmen. Going back to that, I, I never again played without music because in my head I would worry if I forgot where I was and I tried to think in the piece where I was that I would lose it again.
1: Yeah. I, I remember listening to a, a pianist doing um, a Mozart sonata and he kept repeating the first the first section because he kept missing the bridge Mm -hmm. the bridging section and he did it about three times and of course we're all very very worried thinking how's he going to resolve this but he did and and that's just reminded me of uh, the wonderful Wee Mm -hmm. and Wee does everything from memory and he started some years ago maybe it was about ten years ago Um, he started doing recitals where his pianist also played from memory. Gosh. Which I thought was was incredibly scary because at least if your pianist has the music, they can find you or catch you up or whatever or hang about. Anyway, he wanted to do a recital at my summer school in preparation for doing something, I think, over in the States.
0: (laughs) So Pete's drinking.
1: Pete's drinking, yeah. He's having a nice big drink of water. So I remember I was sitting next to Ian Clark in the concert, thinking, how is this going to work with both of them playing from memory? And we were both scared. Mm. We were nervous for what might happen. Nothing happened. They played. I mean, I think there were a couple of moments that, you know, one of them just went slightly, slightly off because we knew the pieces very well, of course. But it was... The actual thought, the concept of it that made us, the people in the audience, nervous mm-hmm. which was really bizarre and yet we, someone as a accompanist, were totally confident and, and, you know, knew what they were doing. So it was it's something we have to maybe hear more often. Yeah. Very brave thing to do.
0: And scary at the same point.
2: And scary, yes. Okay, here's another one
0: from me. Have you ever gotten the wrong train? Yes. I was 24. I had a gig in Manchester. And you know when you go to Houston Station in London, you'll know that very well. And the trains sometimes are on opposing platforms. So I was just going to Houston on the train to Manchester and I'm, I get on the train, sat there quite happily, and then the conductor comes on and said, uh, this is the train to... Liverpool and I should have been going to Manchester so I thought okay I'll get off at Watford Junction because Watford Junction is sort of the first (laughs) stop and I just sort of wait for the no straight up (laughs) (laughs) I end up in Liverpool and had to get all these other connections I made I, I missed the rehearsal but made it to the concert but that was scary yeah and we didn't have mobile phones in those days. No, we oh, didn't. Oh, I'm old, I'm old.
1: We didn't. I had a similar thing that I was driving from London to Manchester mm-hmm. with um, a colleague going to a, a rehearsal. And because we were chatting, we missed the... There were, there's the main, ro- main motorway out of London called the M1. Mm-hmm. And you have to come off the M1 on the M6 to go to Manchester. We were chatting. We missed the M6 and suddenly thought... I don't really recognise where we are now. We were still on the M1 going to Leeds, <laughs> um, and then we had to sort of find our way. And that we didn't. There was no sat nav then, no mobile phones. So you, we just, I just had to sort of find my way across the Pennines. Those
0: oh <laughs> was well, the day you had a big fat map. Yeah,
1: I u- usually did have a map, but I, I don't remember having one. We we struggled, <laughs> but we like you, we missed the rehearsal, but made the concert. But oh, we were made to suffer.
0: <laughs> but do you remember in those days, you couldn't even call anybody to say that you'd, you're going to be late or you're going to miss the rehearsal. The chair was just empty. Mm.
2: <laughs>
0: yes. Oh dear. Any scary pieces?
1: Oh, yes. Now, th- that was quite, it's quite interesting to think about that because there are scary pieces from when you first started. Like, I just remember in Tuna Day Book One where you learnt low E and then middly, e and I was really scared going to lesson thinking... Well, I forget that middle e because you can't change, charts, <laughs> you can't change your fingering. So there's lots of things like that, but there there are, there are quite a few. So first of all, the opening of the Mozart D major concerto, yeah, with the trill and a scale, so simple yet so hard, mm-hmm. so easy to mess up, to to make it sound really clunky and awkward. You have to really practise just that first trill. The same with the Mozart andante. It's got a, a mordant, yeah. um, which again can sound awkward and not natural. Something you really have to take apart and practice as a, as a separate thing. The Poulenc Sonata, the yeah. double tonguey, everyone gets in a real flap about the. yeah, mm-hmm. And the. That bit. So again, it's something that, that with that double tonguey passage, that I wish somebody had told me. A way of practicing it and of course the way to practice it is to take the double-tongue out Mm -hmm. and just play and then just put one bit of double-tongue at a time and gradually build it up but it it took me quite a few years to sort of work that out for myself but there was always a bit in that in that first movement when I was thinking oh please let my tongue work And make sure the pianist plays really loudly. Because the (laughs) piano, of course, has the tune at that time. But,
0: yeah. Yeah, I I wish I'd known that that trick. Because I slowed everything down.
1: Which is, of course, the the first thing to do. It
0: is, but I like the way that you said it. Because that makes so much sense.
1: Hmm.
0: Rewiring the brain. Orchestral pieces. Nightmare orchestral pieces.
1: Nightmare orchestral pieces. Classical symphony. Prokofiev. So Prokofiev actually does some quite scary things. Mm-hmm. Peter and the Wolf, classical yeah. symphony, the sonata with the top Ds, mm-hmm. you know, getting those top Ds. So when I was first studying, it was contemporary music didn't hadn't really pushed us at that point. So the top Ds were, were new, <laughs> you know. So, um, I mean, Boulez had a top E or two, but it was Prokofiev. In Boulez, no one knew whether you got it or you didn't <laughs> get it. They wouldn't know, you know, if you just sort of... Blue, blue, hard, and spat the note out. You were sort of fine, but for coffee, if you knew, so um, that was that was tricky. There are also lots of scary passages in in lots of well-known pieces which use broken arpeggios. So, for example, Everlack last page. Mm-hmm. Which I remember Wibbles used to change and go da, 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 de, 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 de. just use a normal arpeggio, but I, I never did that. I couldn't get my head around that, so it's, it was it was trying to get your fingers around those broken arpeggios. Hoffman Concertstück,
0: oh, cracky. which yes. is
1: a fabulous, fabulous piece. Isn't but the last jumped? page is nowhere to breathe, nowhere to stop. It's just constant. Vivaldi. Rivaldi really? C minor concerto where again things like where you're going from the bottom mm-hmm. to the top but at such speed the same with CP bark G major concerto has got broken arpeggios where you're jumping from the bottom to the top uh, from the bottom to the top it needs to sound so easy but it's not easy it's really really difficult so you have to practice with changing the octaves and Yes, play slow, but practicing your octave jumps and basically not moving too much. So there are lots of things of things like that. So lots of, of different bits of Vivaldi and CP Park do that. And then going to contemporary, the wonderful Mike Mower. Mm-hmm. He wrote his third sonata for me, and that's probably the most one of the most difficult things I'd ever played. And there's also Christopher Caliendo's third sonata, which I recorded, which we'll play a little bit of. That also is one of the the hardest things I've learnt. Uh, Christopher Caliendo write like with Mike Moa, They write passages which are not straightforward. They're a bit awkward. They don't follow the normal patterns. In which case, you've got to learn it so thoroughly because when you're playing, you haven't got time to actually read the notes. You've just got to you've got to understand the pattern and play the pattern, which don't follow the normal patterns. So it's Mike Moore's third sonata and Christopher Caliendo's third sonata.
0: What shall we have a listen to now?
1: Let's do the Christopher Caliendo, a bit of the last movement of his third sonata.
0: Gosh, gosh, gosh. So that gosh. was a
1: little clip of Bronco Buster,
0: Christopher
1: <laughs> Caliendo.
0: Bronco Buster says it all, really, doesn't um, it?
1: So it's, it's very fast. It whizzes around the flute and all registers. One of the hardest pieces I'd played, but surprisingly one of the most satisfying pieces.
0: Is that just because you're happy to finished?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. It, it becomes a personal challenge where you're making sure that the piece doesn't overcome you that the fact that you control the piece, you can control what you're doing to perform that piece and communicate what that composer wants is one of the most satisfying things. And it doesn't matter if it's Christopher Caliendo's third sonata or it's a slow movement of a Handel sonata. It's that you have managed to communicate the composer's wishes and you feel comfortable and a sense of achievement.
0: Yeah, that's the most important thing in any piece of music, is that you've, you're not just playing a dot, you're trying to tell the story as written down by the composer, which is probably why I've always found Bach, Mozart, very, very difficult. And sort of almost a nightmare.
1: They are very difficult, especially as everyone knows them. And I think that's, that's one of the difficulties. When you're playing a piece that's so well known, everybody has an opinion about how yeah. you should play it. And especially with early music in terms of style. Mm -hmm. um, Everyone has their own viewpoint about how that style is. And I think um, I struggled with that for years and years that I never felt... I was waiting for someone to criticise. And it's only when you just get a bit older and become confident and that you can perform and say, this is how I want to do it. And to not to go with the flow, uh, the, 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 the general flow of things and to actually do your own interpretation of it within the confines of the
0: Baroque style. So often having a nightmare could be playing a wrong note at the wrong time or a wrong note at the right time. Did you ever do that? Did you ever do a corking wrong note? Yes. And how (laughs) did you overcome that (laughs) feeling
1: <laughs> I remember um, sitting in a little pit orchestra in, in the Queen Elizabeth Hall, and we were doing something like the Three Cornered Hat or s- something like this. And it was with, da- we were in a pit orchestra because there were dancers. And so it was a very small orchestra, so there's only about nine of us. At the end of one of the sections, where it arrives at a real climax with the piccolo, the last note going. Like that, just this very high, it's loud top, top A, on the piccolo, the end of that section, and the conductor did this great big gesture to bring out this last note, and I didn't play it, so <laughs> he looked ridiculous. And then just after he did the great big gesture, I went, <laughs> 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 so it was it was terrifying and hilariously funny all at the same time.
0: Just the brass players can seem to be able to get away with it, can't yeah. they? With a... Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, um, in one very, uh, very well-known symphony orchestra and we were going on tour to Spain and the plane was delayed for hours and a lot of the brass players went to the bar <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> We finally got on the plane, and that was we were sitting on the tarmac for a long time, and so a bit of drinking was done there. And we got to the the hall. There was only time just to sit a seating rehearsal. You couldn't play anything. And in the middle of the piece, I've forgotten what the piece was. There was a pause, and then all the brass come in. And what happened is all the brass came in at different moments. It, went, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was just <laughs> it was just so funny. <laughs> I'm sure it was very noticeable, but <laughs> I think it, everyone just had a very, very long day.
0: Yeah, you know, with, you know the Halle, where they play in Manchester? Wasn't there, I'm sure it was Andy Berryman, the trombone player, who worked out it was about 54 steps from the stage to the the bar outside, the pub outside yeah. from the stage. Mm-hmm. And so 58 steps, so it, you could sort of quickly get out, have a sherbet and come back in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You just couldn't do that as a flute player, cranky.
1: No, you have to be very, very careful. Look, I remember um, I played, I freelanced with the, with the London Symphony Orchestra for, for about six or seven years. Mm-hmm. They, didn't have, they didn't have a second flute, so I just played a second flute in the most wonderful concerts and series and wonderful trips. As with all orchestras, you're not always in every piece. There was one concert where I wasn't in the first piece, which was about five minutes long. I was backstage and I was talking to Jack Brimer, the clarinetist. Mm-hmm. We're having a lovely conversation, reminiscing about things. He was the most fascinating man to, to chat to. I suddenly said to him, "First first piece is going on a bit, you know, shouldn't we be on for the second piece? He said, I'm not in the second piece. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most awful moment. I ran to the stage door. The conductor was just about to come back on.
2: Whoa. And I
1: whizzed on and went and sat down. I, my heart was pounding. So <laughs> it was absolutely dreadful <laughs> by the skin of my teeth.
0: <laughs> and it's the thing with age, isn't it? Is that you can look back and smile and actually laugh at the, some of the horrors. I mean, There are so many things that I can't actually, and I won't speak about. Over the airwaves, where I really have embarrassed myself... I'm not, not alcohol-wise, but just when my mind hasn't been focused on what I've been doing, really? which is playing the flute, mm. which is creating a story. And, yeah, I can look back in my head and I can smile. But ultimately, a nightmare should be a learning experience. And you think, OK, it will always go, something will always go wrong. You'll have to experience that in your life. But it's learning from that and then becoming more focused as a player.
1: Absolutely.
0: I think we're done, Claire.
1: I think we are.
0: I I'm, mean, the I'm only a-
1: thing I, I I didn't mention is is some of, again are some of the new pieces, like Ian Clark, mm-hmm. who changed the, the the face of flute playing, along with Robert Dick, <laughs> with contemporary techniques, which are also exciting but quite scary to do. But yeah, I think we've we've basically covered it. Scary moments, scary pieces. Didn't do scary people, but oh, um, scary people. We won't go into that.
0: I was always scared of Atara. You did did a brilliant podcast on her a couple of weeks ago because she was such a big personality,
1: larger than life.
0: Yeah, and used to scare me because she was so enthusiastic and joyful. And I was sort of quite a shy. You'd never guess that now, would you? Quite a shy person,
1: but joyful, boundless energy, and she used to charge around the corridors at the Royal Northern when I was there, and, and I sort of duck into rooms to keep keep us away. and I wish I'd been brave enough to go walk up to her and talk to her because a wealth of
0: knowledge and experience. Isn't it interesting how sometimes we can be scared of people for completely the wrong reasons? The wrong reasons, absolutely. In- intimidation, is how we feel intimidated by someone who's good or someone that is super confident or someone like Atara who is a sort of big personality mm. and... Yeah, we, we get intimidated and then we become scared. Yeah. And we often get scared when we see a piece of music. Mm.
1: So I think keep positive. You've got what you think of, of scary pieces. We didn't mean to put you off pieces today, but think of them as a, as a challenge to to be overcome and
0: and try and enjoy the challenge. Yeah, and enjoy the challenge whilst you can do it. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Absolutely. Oh, crikey, yeah. I or mean, enjoy
2: the
1: journey.
0: Yeah, I said i have had a big birthday. I'm, not going to tell you, I'm still not going to tell you how, how big it is, but for me that is a nightmare, because it gets to a certain point and you think, oh, crikey, that's a big number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that is my nightmare, Claire. OK,
1: OK. Well, for our listeners, do get in touch mm-hmm. on, our, on social. Facebook, we have our talky Flutes page and Instagram, Twitter at flute or at claire flute or email us flutepodcasts at
0: gmail.com that's brilliant and please stop listening because we're on number 230 whatever it is and we seem to still keep going don't we we've had we've got about three and a half to four thousand downloads a week and even though i've i've told people stop listening so we don't have to make them anymore the numbers still stay static so obviously people like it
1: Yeah, and we've had some lovely emails saying that we're still relevant, that they they like us uh, chatting away, and it doesn't matter if we repeat ourselves, because you can forget things from five years ago.
0: You can forget things from five years ago, and I paused there because my mind went blank.
1: Uh, It's your big number. It
0: is a big number. Crikey.
1: Well, thanks very much, John Paul. Thanks for coming down to Hove.
0: That's fine. Is that my name? I've forgotten everything now. And thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody. And we're playing back out to thriller by Michael Jackson, played by Theo Travis. Thanks. Good to see you again, Claire. Take care, everybody. Bye.